This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 10th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we've had a very short week this week. We do have a couple of things to talk about, so let's get started looking at that. We're going to first start out with what was probably the most significant case of the week, and that was when the tax court denied an S-corporation a research credit claim, and it's one of these that gives an interesting look at how the court's looking at a claim that came from a basically a study by a consultant. And of course, we're seeing this not just in research credit now, but we're seeing it with employee retention credit and similar items. And what's interesting is both the way that the uh, consultant essentially took positions that the tax court was not going to support, in essence, trying to stretch the rules to cover the situation in front of them. But also, the court was rather nasty in a footnote, uh, shall we say, where it indicated that even though, you know, it kind of tore into the client's attorneys and tore into the consultant uh, when discussing the penalties phase of the trial. And bottom line, the taxpayer got nailed with 20% penalties. The court was upset with the taxpayer's attorneys because they really didn't present an argument. They said, oh yeah, just based on the full record, our client obviously had reasonable cause. And the court wasn't happy with that, saying we're not going to build arguments for you. But number two, then they also took a swipe at the consultant by noting that regardless, if they had if they had tried to claim they had reasonably relied upon the consultant's work, well, that would never work anyway. So we'll talk a little bit about the court didn't really explain what that meant in details as to why they couldn't rely upon it. But it certainly is far from a ringing endorsement, shall we say. And we'll, so we'll talk about a couple of reasons. I, I think there are at least a couple of things that happened. It was both how the consultant kind of stretched what were potential options, which could work in the right situation, to try to cover them in a situation where, yeah, that this was not going to work, cover that far. In essence, just saying, oh, well, there's an exception so everybody can fit under it, is something we've seen in the ERC claims. And I think it's important to understand that no, just because you might be able to do something does not save you from being from actually doing it, which is what essentially the court held here. And then the second problem, you know, was that we're going to talk about their fee arrangement and why their fee arrangement probably also got us into a mess here. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about an attempt to get an exempt organization approval in it. This is a not surprising ruling at all. But it's important to discuss it and also discuss it because you're going to be asked, why can't I, I just gave, you know, I saw this on TV last night, you know, that this poor family, you know, they, they, you know, in essence, the parents are both been diagnosed with cancer. They have huge medical bills. They have four kids, etc. They desperately need funds. I went ahead and made a donation to their GoFundMe. Can't I claim a tax deduction for that? And the answer is no. You can't really do that. And indirectly, you probably, you know, if, if you have the situation where you gave enough, you might have to file a gift tax return and reduce your lifetime giving due to the fact that you had done this. So we'll talk a little bit about that and at least give you the weapons you can use, shall we say, or at least the information you can use. Don't really want to call them weapons uh, that you could use when a client is insisting that, well, I don't know, you know my, my, my brother's accountant did this and said it was fine. You know, we explain why well, your brother's accountant's an idiot. Okay, now that's being a little aggressive, but I'll accept that for a moment. 
and then also explain why, see, you know what you're doing. That, that's probably the biggest difference. So we'll talk a little bit about why that can't work. Uh, it only works under audit lottery, which, by the way, you do not want to be caught playing the audit lottery because if you do, then suddenly the IRS wonders about how many other times you played audit lottery and your clients could have a very bad time from then forward because as, in fact, I was listening to, and we'll talk about this, an attorney discussed that this week, we're talking about going to appeals and those sorts of things. But bottom line said, regardless of how it turns out, your client rarely feels they won <laughs> in the case of, you know, when they end up going to court or having a severe tax exam, that's going to be a case where you survive them, you don't win them. You know, you, you may get a no change, but that does not mean you celebrate and it was the most enjoyable time of your life. It's just not going to work that way. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well as discuss kind of just the background because of what we discussed this week with the um, you know, research credit, other things, and the fact that I, I do think sometimes CPAs get a little mixed up and it comes from the course I had this week that, you know, where I was taking a course from another, from a tax attorney, you know, who does a lot of appeals work. And, you know, he talked about, you know, importance of various levels of tax authority in, in the place of appeals and fully agree with everything he said, but I think there's some stuff unsaid that when you're talking about a client before we're in exam and before we're trying to survive based on what was on the return, that you interpret things, you take them a little differently and clients seem to understand these levels of authority a little differently than when you are in exam and we're stuck with the return as it is. And so we're gonna to try to get something close to what was filed, you know, hopefully for the client, try to try to preserve their position instead of now having to write the big check and potentially face penalties. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Well, let's start out with that research credit case. It was a case of Mark Betts et al. versus Commissioner. Now, Mark Betts and one other party uh, were basically the two shareholders. Uh, there were two involved. Uh, he, you know, he and then I forget the woman's name who's the other shareholder. But while they each were married, uh, reality was, you know, obviously only one spouse, like quite often is really involved in the business. And they were involved in a business that was in essence involved in a case that's gonna come up with the research credit under section 41, right? And what this company did was designed and supplies air pollution control systems, and they do it for plants for some rather large companies, right? Now, as you may guess, if I'm gonna build a brand new plant and I'm, you know, 3M, I'm Intel, I'm whoever, you know, you know local utility, whatever it might be, you know, I'm, I'm building this brand new thing. I need an air pollution control systems applied on this thing. Well, generally there's gotta be some customization. This is not just off the shelf, you know, off the shelf uh, electric plant. That's not really how these things get designed. Off the shelf fabrication site, not really how these things happen, right? Each one is unique, different, and it requires some of its own special uh, fixes for its program. So, you know, they, they were designed these and everyone pretty much was specifically customized to the requirements and needs of the client in question because they had to fit their plant, had to fit their structure, had to fit, you know, both the, let's say the federal plus state and local requirements that might be there. So, you know, all of these had various custom requirements. Now, apparently they got approached by a research credit consultant 
Um, and th this one, I'm not going to give the name. You can read the case. You'll discover the name of the company. It's, shall we say, a large one uh, that approached them and approached them to do a research credit study and came up with them claiming, if I remember the numbers right, between the two of them, it was right around a half million dollars of credit was what was in, in question for the year right here. Now, obviously, we're going to have to assume that other years will be also in the mix eventually because the service having won this one will probably make the same arguments about all the other years they're going to try to claim the credit for. So this is going to be somewhat important, right? Now, the consultant went in, took a look at the company's records, talked with the company about what they did, and they prepared a report. As part of the report, they prepared draft form 6765s, credit for increasing research activities. The CPAs for the, the CPA who did the return for the S Corp, and as I recall, also for the individual shareholders, uh, he just took that draft 6765 and just essentially copied it. Right, so he just brought it straight on the return. So clearly, he was just relying upon the work of the consulting firm. So, you know, he he was not involved in the study. He didn't do anything with the study. It would appear. Uh, he he just got the output and just kind of asked, "Well, g give me the form," and he based it on that. That that was what he did. And there is no evidence in the record that they ever really asked this CPA to review the work to review the basis for the opinion, etc., he probably would have felt he wasn't competent to make that ruling here, um, you know, and basically, and certainly would have been intimidated by this very large organization that had some very big names associated with it. Uh, you know, I, I think probably it's one of those things where, yeah, everybody was kind of like, well, we're going to rely on them. They're the experts. I'm not an expert here. I'll prepare your return. Um, this also is something with the ERC we see amazingly, you know, these companies do not want to prepare the return. We talk about it for various reasons, but they, they don't. And part of that reason is because the, you know, preparer standards may not apply. Now, I happen to think in this case, the IRS, if they wanted to move against them as preparers, could probably do so because I think it's pretty obvious they were the preparer for this position on the tax returns in question. They were the ones responsible for the reported position and they kind of knew it, but they didn't sign the return. Nevertheless, under prepare rules, you can still be a preparer even if you don't sign the return. So, as I say, but it'd probably be a little tougher for the service to win a case against somebody who didn't sign the return. Now, there were some key problems with this research credit study and the amount that they wanted to claim as research credit. Uh, first, we're going to talk about this problem, but they couldn't show that what they were claiming, they, they claimed that, that they built specific models. And we're going to call them models. They never used the pilot model rule, but as the court said, that's the only rule that would work for them. So they built, we'll call them these, you know, these things that were pilot models that they claim, or at least tried to claim were. So that, that could qualify for research. Talk about what the pilot model rule is, but that, that could qualify. Pilot models are basically working at least models of something. And even our the regs could be, in the end, an actual product delivered to a customer. But it's something that's built to resolve uncertainties. And uncertainties beyond just the very simple uncertainties that automatically exist whenever you do custom work for somebody. You know, it's going to be something more than that. Um, they also did not keep time records on their employees. Now, this often happens when a study is done. 
because again, if you're not, if you don't know that tracking this could help you, you're probably not tracking it. And that was the case here. They really didn't have any time records showing how much time employees spent or even what they spent time on. And that will turn out to be a problem as we'll discuss because they basically ended up trying to work this by just kind of back into an idea of, well, how much probably did they do and how much probably did we get? And probably yeah, that, that doesn't necessarily work well. And it's kind of interesting that in this area, we see that quite often. Now you'll note if you ever get into things like cost segregation studies, uh, a good cost seg group will tell you right away that no, we, we need to tie these down. We can't just wildly guesstimate it because those lose every time. Uh, but there it's easier to tie things down because you probably do have detailed drawings and information about what went into the building. So they're able to actually grab the details. And so no, don't estimate we've got it. But in this case, we can't go back and figure out what the employees really did because you know unless we had surveillance cameras on them and we want to go look at every day, we're never going to be able to recreate what they really spent their time on. And that turned out to be a problem. And then for some, but not all the projects, they did not retain ownership of all of the intellectual property related to the research. And that will prove to be a problem because in essence, if it's not your research, you know, you don't have the right to use it, then you can't claim the credit. You know, that, that gets into problems there as we look at that background for funded research, things of that sort. Now, let's talk first about the pilot model problem this organization had. And so we're going to ask, you know, what the heck is a pilot model? Well, the regulation says any representation or model of a product that is produced to evaluate and resolve uncertainty concerning the product. Now, this is key because this model needs to be built and needs to be used to evaluate and resolve uncertainties. And there should be a major uncertainty. And as the court kind of indicates, an uncertainty that may mean you just can't do the project at all, right? And you're, you're not gonna, you know, you're gonna wanna learn about that early. So the idea is we build this prop, we build this model, and maybe in some cases it really has to be full size, which means that, well, if everything works out, we're gonna deliver this to the customer. Uh, you know, we could use it that way, but we're gonna be evaluating constantly throughout the project testing to see how we're doing regarding the uncertainties we're trying to solve. And we have very specific uncertainties that are more than just the standard issue we have with doing custom builds of something for you know, someone else. You know, it's not, not like, well, we've never made an orange computer. So, well, you know, that, well, you know, wow, you know, I have to do research to see what, what would be involved with orange. Not, not really. It's probably be very, very similar to making the red and the blue computer that you were making before. You know, we're going to have those. Yes, you'll use slightly different dyes. Yes, there'll be other issues, but is there a fundamental problem? Not really. You know, you might discover that, well, you did something wrong and that particular, you know, that, that particular dye has some issues or, you know, stains or do some of those things. Yeah, those things come up from time to time, but generally it's not going to be the sort of thing that's major league research, right? Now, the regulation does, as I note, said that you could actually sell these products to the customer, right? So they, they could actually be the deliverers, but you've got to show evaluation and resolution of the uncertainty was why you produced this product. You know, you produced this product and there was a reasonable risk that it would actually go nowhere. The money put in this product would go nowhere and that would be a problem for you, okay? 
Now, one of the key things the court pointed out was, okay, we have this model that we're building. We have a key uncertainty, and that uncertainty is something that if we can't resolve it, right, if it's simple and we know we can resolve it, it's not going to be research. So there's this major league uncertainty, and if we can't resolve it, then anything we put in the model has been wasted because we're just going to not be able to produce, right? Or we're going to have to totally re-junk that, redo something totally different. So basically, you would normally check the model regularly as you got to different points, and you know you would be concentrating on early in the model's development, you know, trying to key in on those things that would be the major uncertainty. Because if this is the wrong direction, then we need to stop work on this because this is a waste of money. The customer is not going to pay for this. And we need to change direction and go do something different or tell the customer we're going to be unable to produce the product, you know, end of day. And a real problem here was that, in fact, they never really tested the model except basically after all the plans had already been finalized and until this thing was pretty much ready to go. So essentially, it's more like standard quality control testing. You know, when we assemble something, even if we assemble something like the computer I'm using today, you know, even though they built many, many, many of these, right, I have a feeling that when it came off the assembly line, the manufacturer still ran some quality control tests to make sure that, hey, you know, everything was connected upright, correct? You know, the, uh, the RAM in here was good. The hard drive, the SSD in here was, you know, itself also was good. You know, it, it didn't have a problem where the power would, you know, it couldn't connect power, things like that. The screen actually would come on. That that's standard quality control testing. And that's done in manufacturing when there is no major uncertainty to be resolved. You know, you're just building the same computer you've been building for years. And yes, if you're somebody like Lenovo, or most manufacturers actually, you know, the customer may go on and may customize the computer. And depending on how many customizations you have, you know, you may build some of those, some of those builds may only be built maybe, you know, just a few times, a specific oddball customization of super low resolution screens, but, but with the most RAM and the most, um, let's say highest RAM, highest disk size in this thing for an SSD with super fast SSDs in it but really, really low res screen, which is kind of like, that's like, by the time you spent that money, why'd you do it? But they could allow you to build it. So maybe you don't do it very often, but there's nothing really unusual about testing the configuration, doing it. And you're not really at that point solving any major problem. And that was why these were considered not to be the testing. The takeaway from this is simple customization is not sufficient to qualify for the credit. You must show a true uncertainty and the way you deal with this thing being built must have shown that you were constantly watching that uncertainty, testing it to make sure we don't need to change directions. You know, that we don't need to just radically junk this because we have a huge uncertainty. This could be the wrong way to go. And if it is, we just need to junk that and get started on a different direction as soon as possible. Second problem were the records of the employees, and this gets into an attempt to use the Cohen rule. For those not aware, Cohen is the most cited case in the tax court. It is the case of George M. Cohen, a Broadway producer. Uh, he's got his statue on Times Square, but he's also the most famous tax case out there. What the Cohen case tells us is 
that if you don't have sufficient records, you don't have records, you know, to help to support your position. But if you can demonstrate that you're, you know, basically that, that you should get the tax benefit, that you'd qualify for some part of that tax benefit, and it can be reasonably estimated, then that's no problem. You're able to go ahead and still get a benefit, even if it's going to be, you know, kind of, they're, they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt in terms of just assuming you qualify for it, uh, or they're not going to give you a huge percentage, but they'll give you something. So they're going to try to use a Cohen rule to estimate time. But as I said, before you can use the Cohen estimates, you've got to show that, okay, it's obvious you qualified for this. In the case of George M. Cohen, the issue was, you know, his travel, entertainment, etc. This is before 274D. They adopted those rules because of the Cohen case, which say you got to have records or no deductions allowed for, you know, at well, for a long time, travel, entertainment. Now, now entertainment is very different, right? You don't get it at all. But, you know, you weren't allowed those deductions unless you have records. That came in law later. That was not in the law when George M. failed to have records. And so they said, well, you know, it's pretty obvious. We know George M. It's just like, you know, George M. probably the similar today be somebody like Steven Spielberg. Well, we know he's going to generate various expenses for entertainment and other things going on because he's going to be out there, you know, whining and dining various parties to get, you know, to get money for his next picture. He's going to be talking to studios, etc. He's going to be trying to get actors into his into his next picture. Right. He's going to be doing a lot of that work. So we know he has that kind of expense incurred. Um, the question is, can we get a reasonable estimate of what it is? this case, the problem was they never had any evidence that these employees performed any qualified research expense. Remember, we didn't know at all what they did. And they never linked it up in any way, shape, or form that would show evidence that any of those employees they listed had any activities inside that qualified, were qualified research services performed by that employee. You know, they, they, they just tried to back into it, said, well, there, there must be some services here. And here's the employees. And they went just basically on, you know, the memories of the owners of the company. And that just didn't work. And it's kind of bad because this case would have gone to the Seventh Circuit, who earlier this year decided a similar case in the case of Little Sandy Coal Company versus Commissioner. And the court there said that they don't have to take on faith the claim employees did research. In essence, tell us the research, tell us specifically who did it. And part of this is, if that research was that crucial, that important, it was a big uncertainty this whole project depended upon, you should know who did it, right? There should be some record of who did it. It's that important. Why did nobody pay any attention to keeping records of it? That, that was one. The court just wouldn't buy that. So if you couldn't show research had taken place, then you can't estimate how much time employees spent on qualified research because we have no evidence yet that we had any qualified research done. That was the key there. The third problem, which only affected some, the first two exceptions really would wipe out the credit entirely regardless of anything else. But let's talk about the third problem here, which is the subcontractors, some of them retained rights. A lot of this work was performed by subcontractors, right? This gets us to the funded research exclusion problem. You know, in essence, if, if you're using subcontractors, there's a risk. You can't count the work they do as part of your research expenditures uh, if the payment that they will get depends on the success of the project. 
In essence, they bear the primary risk of research. Research credit is supposed to reward us for taking risks. But if you're protected because, you know, this contractor is meant to do X, and unless they can develop something that does X, they don't get paid, well, they're the ones taking all the risks. We, we need to, you know, they could apply for a research credit. Uh, but, you know, but you're not going to be able to. And secondly, you need to own the research. Because, again, we're trying to encourage research that you'll do because it'll make you more profitable. It'll make you, you know, it'll allow you to grow the business and do other things to make use of it. If that, if the rights to that intellectual property, right, the rights to the benefits of the research, if that's retained by the contractor, then you don't own the research. So, again, that doesn't work either. You're, you're just, you're letting somebody else do it and you are going to get the benefit for this particular customer, but you're not going to worry about that research elsewhere. And that also, to be just totally honest, doesn't look like you considered the research that significant. Why would you give up this intellectual property? Uh, you know, just let somebody take that over in the contract. Um, basically, probably because you're going to be able to get it by cheaper. They, they see something to do with it. You say they can use it going forward then yeah, they're going to charge you less because they're going to take on part of the risk. So that's also part of the reason why it works. But basically, you cannot have either one of those two. In this case, the tax court found that some of the projects, uh, I think it was like 8 out of 19, uh, violated the second rule. The contractor retained the rights to use the research in the future, right? It didn't transfer over to the company that was claiming the research credit. So this wouldn't have wiped out the entire credit had they had records for the employees, had they been able to show and they really had pilot models in place. Um, you know, then th this would have wiped out some of it, you know, you know, about eight of 19. So probably right around, you know, just under half the credit, but it wouldn't have been fatal to the whole thing. They didn't have a problem with everything. Okay. Now, end of the day, therefore, every dollar of credit was disallowed by the tax court in this case. Taxpayer lost 100%. They have no credits allowed, nothing's left. Though the court found a 20% accuracy related penalty applied regardless of whether they considered it under negligence because technically this was the S corp, right? We're going to go back and compute the tax on each one and you know, is this more than 10% of tax due, uh, the total tax due on the returns or is this over 5 grand? Well, it's over 5 grand. The 10% would depend on the other items on the individual's tax return. The court ruled in this case that this penalty would have applied regardless of whether they tested for negligence, which is the tougher standard for the IRS to come across, and applies if there's not substantial understatement or the substantial understatement penalty. Either one of those would qualify for the penalty in this case. Now, there were a couple of reasons. Uh, the taxpayer could not qualify for the reasonable cause exception under 6664C1. Generally, your taxpayer is going to be fine and will not be considered for substantial understatement, and this likely would get you out of the penalty or negligence as well, if the taxpayer can show there was substantial authority for the position in question, which is unlikely they can show that. Because uh, again, remember, the court's already ruled it doesn't work, so I kind of put you on the back foot there. Or if they can show there was a reasonable basis and it was disclosed. Okay, if they can't show either of those, there is a third way out. If they reasonably relied on the opinion, right, of they, they sought and obtained an opinion from a authority, right, who appears qualified to give this opinion, 
and who has no conflict. If they do that, then it is considered to be they could rely upon that authority to the extent that there's no reason the taxpayer should themselves know better, you know, know what's going on. However, if the, uh, if the person you're relying upon, if they have a conflict of interest that biases them toward giving an opinion, you know, that says, oh yeah, you're allowed to take this really, really, you know, th this particular position on the tax return and they say it's fine because they get paid only if they say that, uh, then that opinion generally cannot be relied upon. That looks upon the neonatology case where we see things like that. So let's talk about how this taxpayer blow the penalty exception. Okay. Well, the first problem, uh, th this is where the court tore into counsel for the taxpayer. Uh, they, they said, consider the entire record when deciding that the taxpayer had a reasonable basis. Now, that sounds right at first. Look at this. They paid for this big study. You know, they have this, they have this like 300-page, 500-page report, you know, etc. Look at all that work that was done. Well, based upon all that work, obviously, they had a reasonable basis. You know, it came from this consultant who's highly recommended, who has people on the board who have been in various high levels of position in government with other organizations, etc. So, you know, sounds like a really, really good thing, you know, something there that, that we did that. that. That would be our argument of saying that. Well, the court said first that this was nothing more than an assertion they qualified for this. What they're saying is you just tell us, hey, they, they qualify, and then you're essentially asking us to go look through all of those pages of documents and try to, from in there, see if there might be an argument that would allow them to say that they had reasonable reliance. Now, realize this is something which also now the IRS has raised. If you send in a research credit claim, you know, the refund claims, you have to actually point to the pages that have the specific backup for each things because the IRS is saying you can't do this to us either. And I think the courts are going to back them there. You've got to be able to show me exact lines for these items, exactly where the support is. Don't just point me to a stack of pages, 500 pages deep and say it's in there somewhere which is kind of what they were doing. They said, we're not going to build arguments for you. That is your counsel's job. And we're not going to do that job for them. Okay. Secondly, we came back in, but they said, and this is where they, they actually, in a footnote, went out of their way to twist the knife some. Okay. They said, but regardless, even if we accept that you had attempted to rely upon the consultant uh, this is going to go. They say, first thing is, you admitted you did not seek advice from nor rely upon advice from the CPA who prepared the return. That was conceded. They never argued that they had basically sought advice from that CPA about whether this credit was valid. They didn't seek advice and they didn't pay attention. They didn't rely upon. So, you know, they didn't seek, they didn't rely upon the advice. And it appears pretty much the CPA just prepared the return based upon just copying over what the consultant gave it. So nobody claims that that CPA gave them advice they could rely upon. And that, that's a big negative for them because that person arguably did not have, you know, they, they could have said flat out, this doesn't work. And, you know, in essence, they, they study it, they come back, they say it doesn't work, you know, they're still paid because they're under, you know, you're under obligation to pay them because you're paying them for the advice. 
So that could have worked. But the fact is, we didn't ask them. And the court in a footnote dismisses entirely the thought that reliance on the consultant's work could have been reasonable by the taxpayer. Now, court doesn't tell us why that was true, but th there are a couple of implications. I think probably the biggest one was the court did tell us up front that while they charged an hourly rate for doing this consultant report, that hourly rate was capped at no more than a percentage of the actual claims as the actual credit that they uncovered, right? So how much did, did they find you qualified for? So if they found you qualified for $500,000, then if it's a 20% credit, you know, 20% cap, then they could charge you up to $100,000. And presumably they had enough hours to make sure they could always get that 20%. Had they done all the work and determined that you didn't qualify, well, there were zero credits identified, 20% of zero is zero. So as you can see, they don't get paid unless they find you qualify. And as well, they have a bit of a bias to find the bigger number. Because again, you know, if they find you only qualify for $2,000, then they're not going to get paid much. So if they find you qualify for half a million dollars and they're getting a 20% fee, then you're going to qualify for a lot more. So there's an inherent bias there. And this goes back to the neonatology case uh, where they held specifically there an insurance person had sold a doctor's group on this, uh, was it 419A plan, uh, that it would allow them effectively to deduct life insurance paid on the lives of the doctors you know, basically turn non-deductible life insurance into deductible and then be able to magically extract it from the company. And there were all kinds of neat things. And basically the court threw the whole thing out. But they said, you know, and the doctors tried to argue that, that they, they relied upon this insurance guy who came in and told them, oh yeah, this works, it's great, etc." cetera. Uh, they, they said, no, you can't rely upon him because fundamentally he only got paid, you know, if, if he advised you that, that you qualified. He didn't get paid a cent if he advised you, you didn't. And that that conflict is something that anybody could see. You didn't know, need to know a thing about the tax law to understand that conflict. It's kind of like you're just going blindly into a, you know, into a random car dealership and asking the salesman on the floor, you know, if the car, if this car right here, which is let's say the highest cost car in the building, uh, you know, if, if, if that, that would be the best type of vehicle that, that you could have both his company and that particular vehicle, well, the salesperson has a real incentive to say, yes, exactly. He's, you know, why, why would he sell the product of another company or why would he want to sell you a less costly one unless he just doesn't believe you're going to qualify, you know, for the financing to get the one you want. So that that's considered to be an inherent bias that anyone should be able to see. And therefore it's not reasonable to rely in that case. Um, what some of our key problems, lack of records would have been fatal in the case itself, but the consultant went ahead and tried to build estimates. Again, remember, only if the consultant could find you qualified, did you get paid. There's an utter lack of records. That, as the court said, was in and of itself fatal. However, if they arrived at that conclusion, well, that gets their fee to zero. That's going to be a problem. There is an incentive to try to find a way to solve this problem. And so they went about trying to solve it, even though the records were so poor 
that, you know, the court said, frankly, you can't even show us any sort of research was done because you have no records of anybody actually doing that research, you know, and you can't really identify what the research was. So saying there's our first problem. Our second problem was, that, you know, they, they made a jump, which I see done multiple times. The regs say that you can deliver a pilot model to a customer that, that could eventually be delivered to a customer, assuming everything worked out. You know, you, you solve the problems, etc. You You might have a pilot model that could then be moved into being the ultimate deliverable. But all that says is that merely the customer getting it won't kill it. I mean, it could never qualify, but you still have to show that you meet the requirements independent of you know, whether or not you call it, whether or not the customer took it. And in this case, they seem to have latched mainly on the concept that, well, we can deliver it to the customer. And so it's okay that that doesn't kill it. Again, remember, we need to have some backup for that. That's going to be key. Also, the contracts with some, some contractors had clauses that meant the research wasn't the taxpayer. No rights to use the results of research, just deliver a product. In theory, the consultants probably should have caught that. Right. And if you're going to be doing this sort of thing, be careful here with the contractors. Right. You want to make sure that you understand that limitation and that that's not in the contract. Um, and in fact, I would say a good thing that, you know, a, hopefully if you have a research study and you're using contractors and you didn't know about any of the rules ahead of time, hopefully the contractors find that, you know, some of your contracts are just not going to qualify. Others may, but the, these won't because you have these contracts that we're going to say are going to fall into the problem of the funded research rule. Okay. And finally, the real problem here for the penalties was they failed to get a true independent opinion from a party without a vested interest stating that they qualified for the credit. The consultant by definition, and remember the IRS has gotten aggressive now in the most recent um, guidance on the employee retention credit. They stated flat out that taxpayers basically should never rely upon statements made by a, you know, an advisor who is being paid strictly based on a amount of refund received. But that's, you know, it's, and so basically it's never going to be reasonable. Um, this kind of gets to the same point. So be aware of that, right? Again, these problems we see here, I've seen them in a lot of ERC studies, right? The uh, consultant stretching rules because there aren't records. So they, they stretch things. They don't worry about not getting worry about getting the records assembled to be proper, or the records aren't there. So they estimate or do guesstimates. Uh, they you know we don't have any documentation of impact on the uh, on the business of the restriction in question. So we just kind of you know have have vague talks by the owners about what impact they think is there. And it's like you know that 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 that's stretching to make it work. Also, don't forget that if you have somebody who is being compensated, you know, if you have an ERC claim where you pay somebody and you pay them regardless of whether or not you end up getting the money and you would have paid them regardless of whether or not they found you qualified, well, that one probably can be relied upon or at least you can get, you know, you can get out of penalties easier than somebody who, quote, said, don't worry about it. We're only going to charge you 20% of the actual credit amounts that we find, you know, so if you get that, that's fine. We take the 20% and we'll even not worry about getting paid to get your check. Um, again, there, there's a problem with those cases. Okay. Next up, let's talk about a private letter ruling. 
uh, or actually it was just a 1023EZ and these come out as letters. So letter 2023-27019, July 7th. This organization is going to raise money to pay bills of a single cancer patient, right? Now, this organization is kind of interesting. The secretary treasurer of the organization had the same last name as the patient, we're told. Now, the IRS doesn't say so, but the key implication is it's a relative, right? That's there. The person's going to raise the money. Under the regulations, what qualifies as a C3? They want to be a 501c3 organization so that contributions made to this organization would be able to be claimed as charitable contributions by those who donated to the organization, which may very well be the other members of the family or members of the family would donate to the organization and then they would be used to pay the medical bills of that individual. Now, one problem is regulation 1.501C3-1D1II. I always love staying citations here on these podcasts. You know, you go out that long. You have to take a lot of notes quickly there. Uh, requires that the entity must serve public rather than private interest. Okay, That's key. You've got to show your charity is serving the public as opposed to private interest. You know, that gets down to things like private inurement, where the benefit goes to somebody. Private parties is the main reason to form this thing, not a general beneficial benefiting the public in general. And they have a couple of things they cite here before they'll come with their decision. They talk about Revenue Ruling 67367. Now, they're the IRS in that ruling, and that means obviously they, they created this theoretical organization that you know at a, would grant scholarships to pre-selected named individuals. And they said because of that, you know, it's raising money to give scholarships to these pre-selected individuals. We know who they are, that that fails and cannot be an exempt org because you know, basically we've got private benefit here. It violates the reg. It's not being done for the public in general. It's being done for a group of people that the donors know as soon as they put the money in who the money's going to, exactly who it's going to, right? And that's all this organization's formed for. They also talk about a 1986 case, the Wendy L. Parker Rehabilitation Foundation, Inc. versus Commissioner, TC Memo, 1986-348, in this case, it was a similar one that is raising money for medical expenses, in this case for coma patients in comas. But in the application, you know, or basically it became clear that 30% of the amounts contributed were expected to go to the family, to a family member, you know, who's a coma victim, right? Family member of those who are forming the organization. Even though 70% of the benefits would go to other coma victims, not the person who may very well be Wendy Parker at that point, I'm guessing that's where the name came from, um, you know, because even though 70% was going to go to other unrelated parties, that was still, the 30% was too high and the tax court denied 501c3 status for the same reason. There was too much private activities involved. And the key is, did the organization have a significant non-exempt purpose? That 30% was significant. In this case, our organization is going to give 100% toward this one identified person. So based on both the Wendy Parker, 100%, 100% is much higher than 30. And then secondly, the revenue ruling 67367 that talks about the donors know exactly where the money's going. It's not we're giving to you know people with medical problems in general or medical bills in general. We're just giving to this one particular person. Uh, that basically means the organization is not an exempt org 
and the contributions to it cannot qualify for a deduction on Schedule A. Now, this is something to help you explain to clients because we have this all the time. They watch something on TV, right? There was some sad story on TV about a family now that's down on its luck. You know, they were thrown, you know, they had a fire, they had, uh, they had a big flood, uninsured, whatever, the waters came through. They have nothing left now. And so the, this poor family is stuck and they're on TV and they set up a GoFundMe and your client makes this big contribution to the GoFundMe fund for that family, which is nice, but it's never going to qualify for a 170 charitable contribution, right? It's not going to work under that theory. Now, note that a 501c3 organization could give support to the individuals. You have to watch for private endearment, but it is possible that you could ask, let's say, you know, a church, whatever, sometimes you see that. They may decide to sponsor a family, let's say like a family of refugees or something coming in to get them relocated from a war zone. They, they could be doing things like that and you see those sorts of things happen. And that's fine, but that's part of the overall purpose of the entity. It's serving that. It wasn't formed solely to do something for that one family. That wouldn't work. And so you can have things like this work now, as I say, always have to be a little careful about this because if you hijack the charity and essentially now make sure going forward that like half of its donations will always go to this one person, that's probably going to be too much private benefit and going to be too much of a problem. So you have to be a little more careful there. But either one is in play. So like I say, I like this one more because it allows you to say, here, client, this is why that $5,000 you gave to GoFundMe is not going to be deducted on Schedule A. Or why this 15000 you gave that GoFundMe fund is only not going to be deducted on Schedule A, but we're going to have to file a gift tax return. right? Because of that, you can't qualify for this. You don't get a deduction. That's been asked multiple times. Okay, finally, let's close out this week discussing briefly what I want to say like the tax research hierarchy. right? Now, I want to mention this because we get into this question and people sometimes need to understand when you're doing tax research, you know, you're, you're like, you're looking up something. I got this question, does X qualify for this, right? You know, how do we do this? What's involved? Uh, you know, can my client get this benefit? And we go to our tax research service or we attend a CPE course, or maybe even got a, something like this you're listening to that has a weekly update that talks about, hey, in this case, th this is what came down. Like we talked about this week, you know, a basically tax court case, a memo case, we talked about a, you know, a letter ruling on a specific application for an exempt org. Now, you know, you may read that. You may be reading the RA tax, RA coordinator, federal tax coordinator. You may be really reading a BNA portfolio. You may be reading an article in tax, you know, in some tax magazine. And they, you know, we'll cite these things. So you're going to come up with, you'll see this chapter, you know, taxpayers, you know, who are, who want to do, who are doing X. And you'll see this, you know, and it'll say like, in, in a case or in a ruling, the IRS stated that, you know, if you did X, the result was Y for tax purposes. But realize not all of those are created equal. And the problem is too often I see people research and they just go into something like the federal tax coordinator and they find a line that describes their situation kind of, and they don't really pay attention to what backed it up. Right? They don't look down at the footnote reference to see what type of backup do you have here? And even worse, they don't follow that up to actually make sure that their situation actually is covered by the particular 
item that was what the tax service was referencing. Hint, if I'm going to break anything down to a one-line statement, I'm going to have to leave out a lot of details. Like the research credit case I talked about earlier today, that, that was a 141-page opinion. We did not go through 141 pages and every single detail because they went through every single project in excruciating detail, right? We summarized a lot. Same problem here. So you want to make sure you do that. So what's the hierarchy? The hierarchy says these certain sources are simply better than others and they're gold. And also as important as the context of where we are in the tax process. If I'm advising a client before the transaction has taken place, we can try to arrange the facts, you know, to benefit us, right? So we, we can do things and avoid certain traps or certain questions about whether we really fit into this particular ruling because we can make sure we have, make sure things meet those requirements. We can ensure we don't foul it up. Just like that research credit, if we were ahead of the game, we could have used the pilot rule and maybe said, okay, yeah, probably this will be delivered, but maybe we could show major uncertainties that we could document that we test and we could treat it like a real, maybe it could qualify. I'm not saying it could, but maybe it could ahead of time. We look at that. So ahead of time, I'm going to try to get the client, if I can, on the highest authority possible to eliminate fights. Because the less, you know, the, the, the more flaky, shall I say, the authority is, or the less, the less reliance can be placed upon it, the more likely it is that we're going to have trouble and we're going to have fights in the exam process. So, yeah, it matters. If we're in exam, I'm going after everything I can go for, right? I'm just trying to find something to make it stick. Now, the top of the hill, as I say, the top thing is U.S. Constitution. Very rarely is this an issue, although we did discuss the potential, you remember, here recently about that being an issue when we talked about uh, the ruling on the 965 transition tax being sought at Supreme Court. That theoretically could be a 16th Amendment case. I understand if they did rule and throw it out based on that, it'd be the first time they've ruled and thrown out a tax law in over 100 years based on constitutional issues. So... Now, we did have a constitutional issue that indirectly hit taxes when the Defense of Marriage Act was ruled to be unconstitutional. But that, that had indirect effects. It just meant that married, anytime you saw it to a revenue code, was not restricted to marriages between a man and a woman, right? As the Defense of Marriage Act required, rather, that, that definition couldn't be applied. It had to be considered if a marriage was legally recognized by the state, by a state where it was performed, then it was considered valid and had to be considered valid by the federal government and be considered valid by all the other 50 states. So that, that, that was, but that was an indirect constitutional issue. The top level is going to be the Internal Revenue Code or tax treaties are normally the top authority. And let's face it, most of us don't deal with tax treaties every day. And even if we deal with them from time to time, they're not on most returns we work with. So normally we're going to be looking at the code as the top authority. If the law is unambiguous, then that is the answer, unless we discover that the Supreme Court tells us you're reading it wrong. If you're reading it wrong, then yeah, you know, we, we, we have a problem there. But until that, that's it. So the code is the ultimate authority. The Supreme Court has the ultimate right to tell us what the code means. But normally, if it's unambiguous, the court is not going to say, oh, no, it doesn't mean that. Now, you may think sometimes, and sometimes I do think they invent ambiguity to get a result they'd like, but that, that's a different problem, you know. But if it appears that there is no ambiguity, 
then basically the code is all you need. It doesn't matter what anything else says. The code will trump everything else. Okay. Regulations. These, in most cases, especially if we're doing something, well, I guess we could always go against, but it's really, really rough. Regulations will generally be accepted by the courts, except in very rare situations. And the real thing to worry about with regulations, if you're in violation of those, if you're going against them, is the client's got to understand that the IRS is not going to almost, is almost certainly, unless the reg's already been ruled invalid, at least by the circuit court that the appeal would go to. The IRS is not going to give up on that. So you're not going to get give at any level based on the regulation being invalid. And they're probably even going to have trouble in appeals getting much in the way of risk of litigation rules being allowed there because basically they're not going to give up on a reg because a reg is almost always supported entirely by the court. So regulations, you got to understand it's a very aggressive position. Generally, it would require litigation if challenged and also requires, uh, requires filing an A275R with a return to disclose you're taking a position contrary to a reg. So regulations are very big. So that means generally for any position, you should know the code section, the code section or sections that impact this position. And you should take a look at the regulations. Now, the problem with regs is they aren't updated always very quickly. So you do have to be very careful on regs to make sure that the law doesn't change. Because again, law trumps regs. And if the law has been changed and the reg's now discussing something that's no longer in the law, then the reg is kind of invalidated itself because it wasn't, hasn't been updated. Your tax service almost always tells you what the most recent update date was. And if you look in your internal revenue code history, you'll find out when provisions were added to the code. So you can pretty much tell if the code section has been changed after the reg was issued. You know, did the reg incorporate everything that it should? That's a big risk on regs. But otherwise, if the reg is, if the reg is based on the law as currently written, normally you're going to just have to follow that. Again, it's a very, very, yes, regs are held invalid. Yes, they could be held invalid. But just understand that that's going to be a much messier system and going to probably require a whole lot more work in terms of going all the way probably to court in order to get that overturned. And you're likely to find that even if you win a tax court, the IRS is going to haul you into the Circuit Court of Appeals. So whether you like it or not, it's going to be an expensive trip as well. Uh, items published into a revenue bulletin. Revenue rulings, revenue procedures, announcements, notices, and the like. Generally, the IRS is stuck with these because the courts aren't going to let them back out of what's their own effectively written official position. The courts are more likely to question these than they are reg, far more likely to question them than they are regs, but you still got to have support for your contrary position. I see some people sometimes look at something like the notices on the ERC and say, oh, that's just a notice. And, okay, just a notice. And yes, they could rule that notice is wrong, but you need to give me a position that is more compelling than the notice or you're not going to win that one, right? So it's not enough to simply say the IRS position is only based on a notice. You need something more than that. Okay. Private letter rulings, technical advice on random, chief counsel advice and the like, they're technically not binding on anyone, you know, but IRS agents and IRS appellate conferees are less likely to take a contrary position say no, it went to the national office. You can use that to help them and they stand on their own as legal analysis. So again, you need to, you know, you need your own backed up position, but if that 
PLR or TAM is in favor of you, especially TAMs, or in favor of you taking advice on random, um, you know, go ahead and adopt that reasoning and force them to explain explicitly how the national office got the analysis wrong. You know, so chief counsel's office fouled up, you know, phrased that way, they might be less apt to want to challenge. But still, remember, it doesn't really. And certainly, uh, you got to make triple sure these, these are still valid. Court cases, normal problem we have is a proper application of the concept of differentiation. Why do your facts mean this decision does or doesn't apply to your situation? What are the facts in the case in question? What are your facts? This is why it is very dangerous to take a one-line summary or like a two, three-line summary of a case from the federal tax coordinator and just run with that without actually going back and reading the case itself. You always, always, always should read every case and every anything you rely upon. You should read. It's important to go back and check those footnotes. You want to make sure that the agent, the appellate conferee and tax court, whatever, not be able to just pull that out and say, well, read this. Isn't this your situation? And didn't this say that that result doesn't apply if you have this situation? And that's rather embarrassing at best and probably disastrous for your client if nobody noticed that that was in the case or the ruling or the reg, right? In essence, that, that it was considered kind of a, an edge case, unlikely to matter. So the editor of the tax publication or the article didn't really talk about it, but it's your edge case. So you got to make sure you read those details, right? In court cases, Supreme Court cases is always the gold standard. If the Supreme Court says the 965 transition tax is unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. If they say it's constitutional, end of story, we're done, right? End of game. So whatever they, you know, if they come up with something that doesn't really say one way or the other when we get done, which is always possible, then yeah, we're kind of stuck with no answer. But if they do give us a clear answer, then that's the answer, right? They do that. The next thing you need to look at is a case for your circuit court of appeals, which would hear your client's case if it gets there. So if you're like I am in Arizona, my client's in Arizona, our case, unless we go to the U.S. Court of Claims, our case, our appeal would be heard by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. If the Ninth Circuit has ruled on something, then that's going to bind the IRS, the tax court, and us, right? Basically, because in essence, if we take it to tax court, the tax court under the Golson rule is going to follow what the Ninth Circuit says, how this works. If the tax court believes that's wrong, the Ninth Circuit is going to back this up. Yes, in theory, they, they could change their precedent. That does not happen very often. And you're really gambling if you're trying for that. So it means that, that the first place that you, are that you have any real possibility of getting relief would be to get the U.S. Supreme Court. Remember, it doesn't have to hear your case. So, yeah, if, the, if your Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled a certain way and your client doesn't like how they ruled, uh, move. It's probably the best approach. Move, move, and then you can start taking the position of the court that said what you liked, you know, and then hope the case doesn't go to the Supreme Court where you discover who's right on the answer. Uh, the U.S. Tax Court, their opinions, right? There's a whole ton of them. Uh, reported full tax court decisions. Th these are like have, you know, number TC and then another number or number TC number and a number. Uh, th these are fully reported, reviewed cases. They are considered fully precedential. They will control. You'll get the same result if you have the same facts. These are cases that deal with a matter of law that is new, unique, 
something the tax court has not considered before. Since most cases don't have that, most ca- and by the way, it's not necessarily everything in the case. You need to do, decide, you need to determine from the case what the unique fact is, what the unique ruling is, because that's what's going to be controlling going forward. Most cases that, that you're going to see fall into the memorandum decisions. Now, these are not technically precedential uh, because they didn't get any new law. They're just applying old precedents to another set of facts. But generally, if your facts are closed, that you're going to see them, you know, they're going to be followed by the court in later cases. And you will see the court report on them, use them in their reports every so often. They're cited quite often by the court. They're cited by the IRS. They're cited by, you know, taxpayers. This one's not unusual. Those are probably the two most important types of tax court case opinions. There are two others. There is the summary opinion. Now, these are less useful because there's less than $50,000 in dispute, and the big hitch is they can't be appealed. Okay, so they're still useful analysis. They let you kind of see how tax court judge is thinking, and, but you can't rely on them for much, and certainly we don't see them cited almost at all by the courts. You know, I I think every so often you'll see one mentioned somewhere, but it's rare, super rare they would ever mention a summary opinion. There's actually one we've seen published more often recently, which is called a desk opinion, or I say, say yeah, desk opinion, oral opinion. Um, the These are informal ones that are issued orally, and then basically, you know, the court reporter takes them down, they're transcribed. Uh, these are even less you know, formal than the summary opinions. And again, have no real presidential value, but again, they are useful. You want to see how it go, or you could even show this to a client to say, look, this guy went to court. This is what happened. It didn't work. So you can tell them things like that. Uh, The U.S. Court of Federal Claims, that's a national court. You have to pay the tax first. So we don't see a lot of cases go this route. Tax court, you don't have to pay first. But it is one, it's the only way to get outside of your circuit. If I have a case in Arizona that I think the Ninth Circuit's going to rule against me on, and the Fisher Trust, if I remember, was the name of the case, on whether you could, uh, you know, in essence, is the IRS correct that money you get for demutualizing a life insurance policy is all considered to be a gain with no basis? And uh, th- that was an Arizona case, but it was taken to the Court of Federal Claims, and the Federal Circuit ruled, along with the Court of Federal Claims, that the answer was no, it had basis. It was accounted for an open account rule. Interestingly enough, a few years later, somebody took the same question to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Ninth Circuit disagreed. So at that, at the trust in Fisher taken their case to the Ninth Circuit, where it should, where it quote should have gone, had they gone a traditional route, it appears they would have lost. They took it to the Federal Circuit, and I assume that was not an accident. And they, they carried there. So it is one way out of the circuit, but it's an expensive way. And that, that's something you'd only really consider relying on that it, you know, in consultation with counsel because you know you got to have a credible threat of going there where the IRS is not backing down. Finally, U.S. District Court, their general purpose court, status tax decision can be very hit or miss. We get some very good decisions from district courts, but we get some really out there decisions every so often. So be a little careful if the only support you have for your position appears to be a district court, especially if we have contrary decisions everywhere else. You know, so we have contrary decisions for other things. So that's, that, that, that could be very different. You know, be careful there. 
Yeah, because you'll, you'll find that they tend to get overturned. That's kind of the issue that we get. If they're, if they're out in left field, it's unlikely they're going to be able to carry as is. And by the way, all research, always, always, always check to be sure your authority has not been overruled by law changes, court cases, other things. If you have a court case, always check a citator. It is very embarrassing to be relying upon a court case that has, in fact, been overturned on appeal by your circuit. That is very, very embarrassing. Or as you know, a U.S. Supreme Court case has overturned the rule. You always want to double check. Make sure, like I said, regulations, you know, has the law changed since this reg was issued? And does that law change impact your case at all? Because if it does, you better have a reason why the reg is still, why the reg's answer still applies, even though the law has changed. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 10th, July the yeah, 10th this week, right? Yeah. 2023 current federal tax developments are brought to you are brought to you, you know, by Kaplan Financial Education and your state society of CPAs. Again, you can uh, email me at zogscurrentfelltaxdevelopments.com. Uh, got some answers. I can answer things there. I'm also on the connect sites for the Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington society of CPAs, as well as uh, taking a look every so often about what gets posted on the Idaho Society's discussion board. So if you're in one of those societies' posts, and if I see your question, I'll see if I have an, see if I want to reply and give some sort of discussion on the point. So you can try there. Otherwise, we're going to see you here next week. We're going to have a full week finally again. So we didn't have what amounted to this past week to a, let's see, the courts don't really do anything on Friday, so we really only had two days, half of normal, because Monday nothing happened because uh, nobody was in anyway. Uh, so hopefully th- this week we'll have a few more things going on, some more to talk about. And we'll be back next week for more current federal tax developments.